Hey there, you are listening to Today in Gaming Yesterday with me, your host, Emma Pearl. Today, we are digging into April 2000 and then a little bit of a deep dive into The Sims 1 on PC. Stay tuned. Let me take you back again. Oh, that, 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 that. Hey there, it's your girl Emma Pearl here, host of Today in Gaming Yesterday. So excited to dig into this month with you. Um, I wanted to give a quick shout out to everybody who stopped by and said, hey, at Classic Game Fest in Austin, Texas this past weekend. Thank you so, so, so much. I had an incredible time meeting so many folks hosting the content creator panel. It was excellent. I am already stoked for next year, truly. I cannot wait. It's going to be so much fun. I got a good haul. I talked about it a little bit on Twitch, um, and I'm really excited about all the cool folks that I met. Really cool games, lots of awesome stuff. So if you didn't make it this year, next year. It's all you, okay? ClassicGameFest.com. Check it out. Um, thanks in advance for those who have rated, reviewed, subscribed to the podcast. Um, doing so on YouTube is also super helpful. So thank you to everybody that's done that. I super appreciate all the support so far. I'm having so much fun putting this together. So I hope that you're enjoying listening. Let's start with some quick thank yous before we dig into it today. I want to give a thank you to RetroMags.com, RetroCDN.net, GameRant.com, GameSpot.com, BerkeleySide.org, The Sims Wiki, SimCrediblesDesigns.com, and PandoraSims.net. Give you a little quick down, quick rundown into the order of operations today. First, we'll start with our top bestsellers chart as well as our top rentals chart for the month. Then we will dig into Game Pro from April 2000, followed by Nintendo Power from April 2000. And then I got to say, there is so much on this topic that I could probably do an entire podcast series about it. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a glimpse and insight into The Sims 1 um, on PC, which, you know, is kind of outside of the realm of console world that we typically live in here today in gaming yesterday. But it's one of my absolute favorites. Um, it's talked about, spoiler alert, it's talked about one of these magazines. I'm sure you can guess which one. So, you know what? I took the executive decision and we're going to dig in a little bit. I learned a lot. As a fan of the game, I learned a ton doing this research, so I'm really excited to see what you can learn, too. I absolutely love it. Love the game. If you've never played it, you're going to learn all about it, and you'll probably want to pick it up, but um, let's dig into it. So the charts, you know how it is. Thankfully, we have the incredible ability to look forward. Um, even though we are not living in April 2000, we can look forward. We can look ahead, figure out what the best selling games of April 2000 were. I'm going to try a different thing this week. We're going to count down from 10 down to one. How does that sound? Fun? Love to mix it up. You know how it goes. In the 10th spot, the 10th best selling game of April 2000 was MLB 2001 on the PlayStation. Exciting. Number nine, we had Triple Play 2001 on the PlayStation. I'm assuming more baseball. April is kind of like baseball, like opening day. So this, this kind of checks out for me. Number eight, Siphon Filter on the PlayStation. Number seven, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater on the PlayStation. Number six, Resident Evil Code Veronica on the Dreamcast. Number five, Star Wars Episode One Jedi Power Battles on the PlayStation. Coming in at number four, Siphon Filter 2 on the PlayStation. Number three, we have Tony Hawk's Pro Skater on the N64. Number two, we have WWF Smackdown on the PlayStation. And coming in in the number one spot for the best-selling game of April 2000, Pokemon Stadium on the N64. It's still taking over that top slot for March, and I got to say I love to see it. I think that's really sick. Great game. Solid game. Now I want to play it. So we're going to dig into the blockbuster top 10 rentals of both the N64 and the PlayStation. I am so sorry in advance uh, any Dreamcast stands. We will dig in more into so many thoughts I have on the Dreamcast, but, you know, they just didn't offer Dreamcast, Dreamcast hot goss on the top rentals. So let's go again from 10 to 1, starting with the N64. In the 10th spot, we have Ready to Rumble Boxing. Number 9 most popular rental, Toy Story 2. Number eight, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six. Number seven, ECW Hardcore Revolution. Love wrestling. Number six, Army Men, Sarge's Heroes. Number five, Donkey Kong 64. Number four, WWF WrestleMania 2000. In the number three spot, we have Disney's Tarzan. Number two, 
we have Mario Party 2, and the number one hot rental on the N64 in April 2000, Pokemon Stadium. What a champ. You love to see it. Now for the top 10 PlayStation rentals of April 2000, according to Blockbuster, where we all certainly get all of our rentals you know, for all of the renting we do these days. Uh, number 10, we have Fear Effect. Number nine, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Number eight, Grand Theft Auto 2. Number seven, Resident Evil 3 Nemesis. Number six, Medal of Honor. Number five, Road Rash Jailbreak. Number four, Tomorrow Never Dies. Number three, The Dukes of Hazard Racing for Home. In the number two spot, we have Gran Turismo 2. And in the number one spot for the PlayStation, Hot Rental of April 2000. We have WWF SmackDown. The wrestling games are in full effect. You love to see it. You love to see it across the purchasing world, across the rental world. Everybody wants to wrestle, at least when it comes to video games, you know, sick stuff like that. So let's dig into Game Pro. Let's dig into April 2000. So Whenever I hear April or think of like April in general, all I can think of is like that really whack little dad joke that's like, April showers bring May flowers. What do May flowers bring? Pilgrims. Hey, I still love and loved, quote, bad jokes as a kid. Uh, one time when I was a preteen, I wanted to start a zine. This was probably in like 2003, 2004. Um, I want to start a zine. And so I asked my dad, like, any, in my mind, any good zine had a section for jokes, um, at least for me when I was a preteen trying to work on this. And so I was like, Dad, do you know any jokes? Like, do we have any joke books? And he's like, Oh my gosh, yes, I have the perfect thing for you. It was a literal three and a half inch floppy disk that contained a text file with jokes on it. So I'm here to share some of my favorite jokes from this text file that my dad shared with me from a floppy disk in the early 2000s. What did the fish say when it hit a concrete wall? Damn. That was like a really good one for me um, as a kid, you know, like, ooh, damn. Ooh, you love to see it. Great stuff. Uh, the last one I have for you to share from this. There were so many. I wish I could find it now. Why do Pilgrim's pants always fall down? Because their belt buckles are on their hats. That's like probably the most groan-inducing joke I could have possibly included anywhere in a podcast, sharing in real life. That's, that's pretty much it. I can guarantee every single person listening to this right now, no, none of you laughed. Everyone went, <sighs> or like, uh, or just immediately turned off the podcast and you're not listening to me talk about it. But that's okay. Valid. Super valid. So with Game Pro this month, very, very heavy PS2 across the board. They have what they call a PlayStation 2 blowout preview, which hot take wouldn't call it the greatest PlayStation 2 preview I could imagine at this time, especially given like it was already released in Japan at this point, right? Like there are no mysteries left. But what really stood out to me for this episode issue of Game Pro is that they mentioned The Sims 1 on the cover. And I was like, that's, that's that game I like. So I'm in. I can't see it on the cover now, but believe me, it's there. Oh, yes. PC Game Pro, The Sims. Duh. <laughs> Great stuff. The cover filter, cover game is Siphon Filter 2, which did, you know, make its way up the best-selling games chart, coming in at number four for the month. So GG's to the team. The graphics look wild. There's a lot of fire, a lot of weaponry, a lot of, like, arr, like teeth, like a very teeth-heavy, if I had to say it would be teeth-heavy cover for the month. Um, very exciting stuff. They also feature a strategy guide for Street Fighter Plus, and they have on the on the cover like the green, the green character with the wild orange hair. And I can only think about Fortnite, where right now in the, in the Fortnite item shop they have all of the Street Fighter characters, and that's the only time I really think about it and see it. Um, there's a really cool ad in here that I was kind of into. It kind of feels relevant to the interest and something that I'm really excited to dig into as we get more into 2000s. It is for uh the net gaming on the net with the Sega Dreamcast, which there is a little bit of feature of in this issue. I'm really excited to dig in with you, but you know, it's like one of those times where it's like, yeah, like there are people, you know, they have like an, uh, like a graphic. It's like, Oh, all these people all over the country. And like, it's kind of wild. I really like to see it. Cause I don't, I don't even think I think about it these days where I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm like playing Fortnite with my friends. Like one's in South Carolina, one's in Maryland. Like 
all over the place. And I don't literally think about a map. So this is kind of nice to take me back, to ground me a little bit. There's also some great, great advertisements throughout this issue of GamePro for Target. Um, they're kind of leaning into this like, ooh, Y2K aesthetic moment, which I absolutely love. It's like kind of like, like curvy with like blocky colors. And like there's like a dude who I really wish was wearing a puka shell necklace. He's not. I don't think if he is, I can't see it. I included a picture with the episode guide that is on Twitter. So check that out if you really need like a good like 2000s advertisement. I'm also so excited in general for all of the PS2 hot takes. They're just continuing, continuing. And um, a lot of the letters to and from the editor are about the PS2 this month. It's kind of wild. In like a fun way, but also in like a people are really freaked out for some reason way. Which, I mean, when they talk about the letter from the editor, they talk a lot about how it's like a revolution. A video game revolution is occurring at this time. To quote them, graphics and sounds are about to become so real, they're unreal. And the letter also acknowledges like, hey, the Dreamcast launched last year, but like, this is it. This is a revolution, dude. Like, yeah, it's all happening. Um, kind of funny that, you know, the graphics were already there, but they're like, the revolution starts now. Um, I really want to dig in more at some point as to like why everyone was just so dismissive of the Dreamcast already, but not something I can dig into today. Oh, I'm dying for that data. So sick. They're quoted as also saying, these systems will bring the web into your living room via your TV. So you won't have to park at a computer workstation to visit your favorite online sites, which like for me... I don't want to go off on too big of a tangent, but like, did anybody really see the smartphone revolution coming as big as it ended up being? Like, obviously, we can all think about like a Steve Jobs moment where he's like, oh, yeah, it's like a Pop-Tart in your pocket that you're just like using to, to do all of the Internet things that you want to do. Like, yeah, but um, I actually have a book that I got from Half Price Books. It's called The Road Ahead. It's written by Bill Gates in the year 1995. I need to read it and I need to be like, Bill, Bill, did you know? Did you know this was going to be our reality, our little our little Pop-Tarts that just connect us to all kinds of people on the internet that we would never meet or interact with otherwise? Like, tell me, Bill. Tell me if you saw this coming. They also mentioned, it's also probable that within the lifespan of these machines, video gamers will be online playing multiplayer games. Like, nice. Yes, we're there. They're also quoted as saying at the very end of the letter from the editor, change is good change is fun. So as this latest stage in the video game revolution kicks off, just think of it as evolution with an attitude. I'm like, yeah, bro. I love 2000. It's all about attitude. Like we're still kind of leaning into that nineties, like, Ooh, but you know, except with more technology and video games, which I'm into. We all know that. As mentioned, there's just so much worry about the PlayStation 2. Like, most of these are just, like, so concerned. Um, there's one question, one letter that comes in and says, do you think Sony might be overdoing it with the PS2? Uh, Greg is worried um, that, you know, the games are going to be expensive. Like, what if the Dreamcast just, like, drops its price, like, and has more games by the time that the PlayStation 2 comes out? Like, Greg has great points here. But GamePro says, quote, guesstimates on PS2's price tag vary between $350 and $500, which, oh, my God, $500. And that's in 2000 money, right? Am I bonkers? That's so much. But they really do make like a really solid comparison here where they're like, you know, the PlayStation itself, PS1, launched in 1995. It was $299 for the console with $49.99 games. But now you can buy the system for $99 and good games for $20. Bucks. So it's like, if you think about the passage of time, more and more people are going to invest. The, the hardware is going to get cheaper. Like, it's not too much. It's going to be great. They're not overdoing it. And then another worry. Do you think Sony's PlayStation 2 will be better than the Dreamcast? $400? Isn't that a lot for just a gaming system that can play DVDs? And why did developing it take so long? Like, wow. GamePro also really digs into this one, calls it a very well thought out list of concerns. They say, uh, you know, the hardware, microchip design, it's better than the Dreamcast, but it depends on the games is what they say, which like, it's so funny to me because they already were dismissing the Dreamcast in the January issue that we dug into a few episodes ago. So like, it's so funny to hear them say like, we'll just have to see, like they had given up. So maybe they were just trying to not give up. Um, they call out, you know, the system, the, the specs that had been shared so far, like it is a powerful system, but then it also has a DVD player, man. It's going to save you 150 bucks right there. So if you pay $400, you know, you're, you're getting a DVD player and then, you know, you're also getting this high powered gaming system, which like, do they, should I buy a DVD player? Like I want like a normal DVD player. I don't own one Blu-ray 
DVD, but I own a lot of regular DVDs that I would like to watch. And all of my adapters are not good for this. I have too, too, too many. Um, plus, like, when they talk about, like, why did it take so long to develop this? It's like, yo, they were still cashing in on the PS1 at this time. Like, Sony was not doing bad with the PS1. Like, they were still releasing games. My aforementioned late-stage PS1 games on multiple discs. Beautiful stuff. Like, they were still making the money, which gives them time to develop and make, like, a really sick console. So all of my worries about the PS2 being released have been alleviated with this. Um, this is also just, like, a cute thing they just published, which was somebody made um, a petition on their website to bring back Sonic the Hedgehog cartoons. Um, I looked it up on the Wayback Machine, and, oh, my God, early 2000s web design will just, like, always have this very special place in my heart. Like, so good. So, so, so good. In the Buyer's Beware section this month of Game Pro, they basically just focused on buying games from online auctions. Like, buying games online. Like, duh, it's the future, baby. You're about to be online on your Dreamcast, brother. You got to get used to the idea of buying games from online auctions. So of course they talk about eBay. Um, they say, quote, on any given day, eBay will probably have over 5,000 listings for all types of game software and hardware. Like, I do wonder how many listings come up per day in the same category now, 20 years later. Like, I'm so, so, so curious. And they mentioned something I'd never heard of before, which was the used game trading zone, UGTZ.com. You know, we love rhyming. T-I-G-Y, U-G-T-Z. Have a good soft spot for that. So I went to the Wayback Machine, of course, and I looked at this. They have like this level of transparency that is kind of bonkers in this day and age where they will list like every single trade that is facilitated from this website. So it'll be like, this person traded this person. This is what they traded to them. This is what they traded back, whether that was like cash or games or whatever. They also have a list of good and bad traders. Of course, I had to look at the bad traders. I had to see the drama. And this thing is wild. They list, when you talk about a bad trader, you report a bad trader on this game, or excuse me, this website, you list their email address, any contact information you have, including their literal physical address. And then you provide a description of what happened. And like, this is some like very intense drama from, from the early 2000s. So this was from May 2000 is what I was able to find. Um, this is a bad trade that happened. I sent him a CD, 311. He was supposed to send me a Zelda 64 game guide. He never did. His account is gone and I never heard from him again. I will gladly take this off when I get my guide. It has been over a month, so I have been patient. Email me, Chris, and we can settle this. Otherwise, court awaits you. Like, oh my God, not the 311 CD. Anything but the 311 CD. Like, I really could have gotten stuck reading those for hours. Like, it's so fascinating to me. Like, 20-year-old drama that does not involve me and is, like, very low stakes. Very fascinating stuff for me. Pro News on the topic of drama, Pro News features all of this drama that I thought was fake. Like, let's be very real. April, April Fools, it happens. People do things, make jokes, make goofs. I thought that this was a joke at first, but then I Googled it and it is absolutely not a joke. The high, <laughs> the, the headline, Psychic Sues Nintendo Over Pokemon Likeness. So a psychic named Yuri Uri Geller, he sued Nintendo. At the time, he wanted to sue for $100 million, saying that the whole bending spoon thing, the whole uh, idea of this level of, of magic and psychic ability was all him. And Kadabra, in particular, rips off of him, is, is Geller's whole claim here. So Geller, Ben Spoons is like his whole vibe. And also, like, kind of wild. Kadabra's Japanese name is Ungeller or something of that sort. If you want to correct me, I beg you to please correct me. T-I-G-Y-Pod at gmail.com. Tell me everything. Wild. Like, it's hard to not see any kind of likeness. A quote from Geller at the time said, I wouldn't have given permission for an aggressive and in one case evil character to be based on me. I don't know if I ever saw Kadabra as evil, but... I get it. You can kind of see it how you want. Quote, he's a bad character. He induces headaches in people. I'm exactly the opposite. Like, I never saw, when I, if I had met a cadabra in the forest, I wouldn't be like, that dude's going to give me a headache and ruin my day. I'd be like, look at that. Bend that spoon, bestie. Um, so I, I Googled this, of course. This finally actually wrapped up in 2020, a whole 20 years later. The quote says, while Geller wasn't financially compensated by Nintendo or the Pokemon company, 
back in the day. An agreement was made to stop using Kadabra in both the Pokemon anime and the Pokemon trading card game. The Pokemon promptly disappeared from both parts of the franchise, even as it continued showing up in core games. So their solution, you know, instead of paying him was to just be like, okay, we're not going to make the card anymore. And he's not going to be in the anime, which I never even realized. Like, was this obvious to everyone else? And also I wonder what this, like, this was in 2020, this finally wrapped up. How did they deal with this in Pokemon Go? Like, was that enough of a core game that they could feature it? Like they could feature Kadabra? I'm trying to remember. Apparently over the years, he's gotten a bunch of letters from Pokemon fans being like, yo, like, Drop it, best dude, please. Like, drop it. We miss Cadaver. We miss the spoon bending. It's good stuff. He finally released a statement in 2020 and he was like, listen, I'm so sorry. I I've made mistakes in my past and I'm ready to get over this. He reached out to Nintendo and he's like, Nintendo, please. Like, end the ban on this character. I beg you. And I guess they did. And I can't believe I never heard about this. I never knew about this at all. Like, is this a well-known thing that I just did not know about? The court, the courts will decide. Well, Nintendo was just like, fine, we'll put it away for a few years. And, and he decided it could come back. Very good stuff. Okay, so they have a section here called NetPro, which is exciting to me because they talk about the Dreamcast network, bro. To quote, thanks to the 56K modem in the Dreamcast, online console gaming is just around the corner. Sega has big plans for Y2K. Let's go. I love it. I'm excited. So... Apparently when the Dreamcast was released, they apparently ahead of time were like, online gaming, it's time. And so when they didn't have that, folks were pretty bummed, pretty bummed out about it. And so, you know, that's valid. Uh, they they have a Dreamcast network at this moment where, you know, it's it's functional. You can, you can send an email. You can chat with your friends. You can browse the web and do, quote, all that good online stuff. Uh, another quote, the folks at Sega are working to alleviate some of the latency problems associated with online gaming. Even though it's tinkering with, quote, next generation routers and technology, Sega is the first to admit you won't see a perfect system. I wonder, too, like, I think I was, like, a little too young at this moment to, like, be into the Dreamcast. Like, was online play, like, a huge reason folks bought it? Because they were like, I'm ready, baby. It's the it's the new millennium. Not until 2001. It's the new millennium. I'm ready to get online and game. Uh, were folks like that? Was that the thing? They talk about... Um, one of the games that was advertised earlier in this issue that I kind of mentioned a little bit, it's called Choo Choo Rocket. It's a kind of a puzzly game. And then they talked about like card games, which I guess both of those were more feasible to them because there was low latency. Like there wasn't like you needed things to happen in the moment. Your ping didn't matter as hard. Like it was, it was easier to make it happen if you're freaking playing go fish with somebody than if you're trying to like play a shooter against somebody where things actually matter in time. They mention here, quote, in May, Sega will implement the point-to-point -point protocol that will allow the Dreamcast owners to dial and connect dire directly to another Dreamcast machine for gaming, thus bypassing any internet-related latency snags and speeding up performance. Like, I, I would love to dig into the technical specifications of how that was meant to work and how it actually worked. Because, like, it makes sense when you say it out loud like that, but also, like, very interesting. It's an interesting way to approach the latency for sure. This came out in April. They're saying in the fall, quote, eight to 10 games will be available for online play. I cannot wait to see how this shakes out the rest of the year, honestly. And then they have, you know, in this net pro section, they talk about Sharkwire Online, which there have been an ad for um, previously in some other issues. And I was like, I want that. It's a beautiful, beautiful translucent blue case. It plugs into the N64. Um, I finally got details on how it really works. So it comes with a beautiful blue translucent keyboard. Oh my God, beautiful. Uh, all of the content is mostly text-based. Boo. Um, it's mostly just an intranet, like AOL.com back in the day. Boo. It's $10 per month. Boo. It's bare bones, but I still want it. And now I'm like, if I bought that, if I bought this and I, I found a way to get it hooked up, would it still work? This is my quest now, is to get this going. Because I want to know. I want my text-based intranet moments. I love the internet. I want to see what's going on. Next up, we have the exciting PS2 feature, which is actually kind of small. I'm so sorry to tell you this. Uh, I can present you with some big picture facts, though. There's an 128-bit CPU called, literally, this is in quotes, from, from Sony. This is what they call it, the Emotion Engine. 
is what Sony called it, because it will capture the emotions as well as the imaginations of gamers. Cool. Absolutely. Super duper. Uh, backwards compatibility, like, we all know. We love it. I'm excited. And, of course, it has a DVD player, dude. Like, the more that I, like, obviously I'm, like, kind of goofing a little bit, but the more that I talk about this out loud, that is actually sick. You're like, okay, like, why wouldn't I buy a PlayStation 2? It can play all my PlayStation games, any PlayStation games that will come out, and it can play DVDs. And it will capture my emotion as well as my imagination. <laughs> it also featured better, faster memory cards. Uh, and I didn't know this, but apparently the buttons for a PS2 controller are more, like, responsive. Like, they can take pressure versus just, like, I press the button. It can be, like, I pressed the button a little bit versus, like, I pressed the button real hard, which I think is awesome. Um, and they have a really cool section for, quote, games that might happen. Uh, very, very sick. Like, it's all it's just kind of a big list. PS2 predictions. And they have one on there. It's one of the ones we talked about in a previous episode called uh, Gran Turismo 2000, which was later called Gran Turismo 3, which I won from a cereal box and gave to my elementary school crush. You're welcome. So with April happening, they have a, they have a joke section of the magazine called, quote, Excuse the ableism. It's called Lame Pro, uh, which is kind of goofy. There's a lot there. Um, the only thing I found in here that I found the most interesting and possibly funny was that they were fully dunking on uh, Star Wars Episode One. So they had a fake, they have like fake reviews. It's just like a fake game pro with like fake things in it. Um, so they have these fake reviews for this fake PlayStation game called Star Wars Episode One Eraser. So let me read you the premises of that. The game that lets you take out all the stupid stuff from the Phantom Menace. Hop in your pod racer and take off. With every thrilling lap around the track, you'll strip away another layer of overblown special effects. The race is won when Jar Jar Binks is no longer visible. Great. Yep. I'm in. I'm super duper in. So we get back to, actually, that's a joke. I'm not in. I like the prequels. I love a prequel meme. If you have a lovely prequel meme that you'd like to share with me directly, I do implore you to please do that. Uh, T-I-G-Y-Pod at gmail.com. Send me your prequel memes. I need to see them for my own, my own well-being. Uh, they have... You know, they have in every every issue these PC Game Pro Pro reviews. So for PC games, which I usually ignore, but as we know, The Sims 1 has my heart. Um, they talk a little bit, you know, they have a quote in here that I really like. The game is so rich and deep that it's all too easy to lose track of your own life while maintaining those of your creations or even confuse the two. Don't doubt it. The Sims is a must-play evolutionary step for PC gaming. Like baby 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 you're so right i'm so in let's talk about the recommended system requirements while we're here uh windows 95 or 98 pentium 2 350 32 megabytes of ram 280 megabytes on a hard drive free space two megabyte video card a 3d accelerator nice 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 um and they also have game pro skins and outfits you can get for your sims we'll talk more about that it's incredible i love this game uh they gave it really excellent reviews 4.0 out of 5 for the graphics 5.0 out of 5 on the sound 4.0 out of 5 for control and 5.0 out of 5 for the fun factor your real life may suck but directing the daily activities of a custom-made family is surprisingly addictive and rewarding while clearly a first generation product the sims opens so many creative intriguing doors that its few shortcomings are easily overlooked here's proof that Life is really what you make of it. Okay, I kind of love that. I kind of love that whole quote in general. <laughs> so uh, there's a little bit more in this in this game pro. They spent a lot of time on the on the the joke uh, issue piece, but they have a review for Echo the Dolphin on Dreamcast, which I have recently purchased. I got it at Classic Game Fest. Got it from G to the next level. I'm very excited about it. Thank you so much, George. Shout out to you for selling me this wonderful game. I have Echo the Dolphin on Genesis, and I'm really excited to play it. Because when I read the book Console Wars, they're like, this dude was super stoked on creating this dolphin game. And I'm like, I'm in. That's all it, that's all it took for me to be like, the Genesis is the future. I love it. And also, I know everyone's been dying to know. It's been the talk of the town. Crazy Taxi on the Dreamcast did get good reviews. And also, there's a Rayman review in this game that has extremely good reviews. 
very, very good reviews. They're like, Rayman's the future. Rayman's here. We all love Rayman. And I've, I've never played a Rayman game. Like, am I missing out? With the Rayman, please do tell me. I'm dying to know. Um, but yeah, that is what I took away from GamePro in April 2000. Next up, we're going to dig into Nintendo Power from April 2000. Lots of really good stuff here too. More things that I cannot believe are real, but I'm thrilled to tell you are real. So stay tuned. You're listening to Today in Gaming yesterday with me, your host, Emma Pearl. Let's give a quick break. I will see you in a moment. Welcome back to Today in Gaming Yesterday with me, your host, Emma Pearl. So excited to dig into the April 2000 issue of Nintendo Power with you. The cover's Tony Hawk, and by God, Tony Hawk be shredding. Excellent stuff. Cannot wait to dig in a little bit into the N64 version of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Also, there is a new Mewtwo trading card inside of this issue. Get stoked. I'm ready. I'm stoked. The letters to the editor section, um, I've noticed with Nintendo Power, has a cute little theme. Like, they, like, seed questions, and so, like, there's just a cute little theme. And so the, the cute little theme of here is, like, how how are games right now going to compare to games 50 years from now? Um, it's very cute. None of them were cute enough for me to really dig into that much. Uh, someone named James said that they think there are going to be holodecks in the year 2050, like, on Star Trek, which, like, cool. Absolutely. I would like that. I love that. I am a Trekkie and I'm super into that idea. There's a really, really, really cute letter though. <laughs> it's called Jigglypuff Jitters. I was trying out for choir at my school and the teacher let us choose our own song to use. I was going to use the Star Spangled Banner, but I was so nervous that I forgot the words. So I sang the Jigglypuff song and get this. I got the part. I just wanted to say thanks. Like, Thank, thank you for that serotonin all these years later. Thank you so much for that. There is something in this episode, episode, there's something in this issue that I thought was an April Fool's joke. I dug deep into this. This is not a joke. This is very real people. This is a direct quote. I just need to read you the whole thing. Nintendo is cautioning all users of the Mario Party video game, first sold in February 1999, not to operate the control stick with the palm of the hand because of potential irritation to and blistering of the skin, and instead to use the thumb and forefinger. Nevertheless, in case Mario Party owners may continue to use the palms of their hands, Nintendo will send them a free glove for each player to use with the game upon presentation of proof of purchase and ownership. There was a phone number. A toll-free phone number. I called the phone number being like, what is this? I, so in my mind, I was like, maybe if you called this in April 2000, it would say April Fool's from Nintendo Power. But I don't think that it did that because when I called, it was like, you've reached Nintendo. And I'm like, oh, dang, dude. Maybe this is the real deal. So I Googled it and this was very real. Why did they announce it in April though? Please. Uh, from Game Rant, Nintendo of America agreed on Thursday to provide protective gloves to approximately 1.2 million children who play the game Mario Party. The agreement is part of a settlement with the New York State Attorney General's office and could cost Nintendo up to $80 million. Nintendo will provide each family with up to four gloves as part of the settlement. In addition to the cost of the gloves, Nintendo has also agreed to pay for the state's legal fees, totaling about $75,000. So the glove, the glove is not Nintendo branded. It's like a, it's like a weightlifting glove. So it doesn't have fingers and it's just like, just kind of covers your hand to protect it from rough things. Kind of like a golf glove or it literally was a weightlifting glove. But when I looked it up and people were like, oh, is it branded from Nintendo? And people were like, no, why would they brand the glove? that is protecting precious children's hands from having burns on them from using their entire hand to spin the joystick around on their N64 controller. Cannot believe that that was real. They do dig in and have, they have this really, really intensely detailed um, play-by-play of all the different levels in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater for N64, which I love, love, love. I still haven't played one. Like, don't. Don't come for me for this. But I've played Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 about a million times, but I've never played one. And now I kind of want to get it for the N64 because it looks good. They say it has great replay value, which, you know, huge for me. A collector. I need that so badly. 
They also have an, a pretty big, pretty deep, perfect dark feature, which I think I actually needed before purchasing the game because they have a literal chart about the expansion pack use with this game. And it says 35% of the game is playable without the expansion pack versus 100% with the expansion pack. I had to learn that the hard way. I had to learn that by booting that thing up, putting it on stream and being like, why can't I play the solo campaign? It's like, you don't have the expansion pack. Like who, who expected that? I never did. Maybe I should have read Nintendo Power in April 2000 and then I wouldn't have embarrassed myself so badly. Um, and I also never realized it was rated M for mature. Dang. So I legitimately am going to use this walkthrough because I had an embarrassingly difficult time completing this game. But uh, also Kirby on the N64 looks really cute. And I, of course, jump ahead to the Poke Center, which is very important to me, but could have been a little bit better this month, but still had some very interesting like nuggets of information that I do need verified. Um, it's a little, it's a little more intense than I expected. I never expected what I learned in the Poke Center with this. So um, they talk, of course, like the drama is missing now. The drama is always missing now. And somebody says, what's up with my yellow game pack? I can't make the missing no cheat work. And they say, you sure can't. Considering the fact that missing no was a glitch in the Pokemon Red and Blue games and not a sanctioned cheat, the programmers managed to remove it from the yellow version. Now where are you going to get infinite rare candies? Like, whoa, 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 chill. And also... I thought that I did missing no on yellow. Was I the only one that thought that I did? Like, it wasn't like the classic, like, like the, the skinny boy with the little chunk. Like, it wasn't that missing no. It was a different guy, but it was the same thing. But I still did it. Nobody tell Nintendo. Please, no one. Please, nobody report this podcast, please. Also, this I don't understand. This was the only other real thing that, like, stood out to me in this issue from April 2000. This person asked a question and says, I took a bunch of pictures of Alakazam in stadium and compared them with a friend of mine who has the same Pokemon. Much to my surprise, I noticed that their coloring looked substantially different. What makes the exact same Pokemon look completely different? And this is what Nintendo Power says. It's all in the name. The color of your Pokemon will vary slightly depending on the first couple letters of its name. And there's one special case as well. Pikachu from red and blue will look and behave one way when in front of the stadium camera. If you have a yellow cartridge, however, your special Pikachu will look and act different and may even go so far as to give it a friendly wave. I think I bought this. <gasps> I did. I have it on my desk. I bought a Game Boy transfer pack for N64, and I'm going to try this. My Pokemon are all very weak across all of my games right now, but I need to see this. I need to see the different colors. I can't believe that. I fully cannot believe that, that that's so different. But I'm, I'm like flabbergasted about it. The next most exciting thing for me was the well, you know, they have they have an episode of the anime that is fully just comic form in this magazine, which gorgeous. You love to see it. Great art. Great story. Uh, they also have a feature about the 2000 Olympics games. They're all very difficult. Don't 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 read them. Don't play them. Sorry. <laughs> My brain is not there for the release rankings. Uh, shocker. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater took the top spot with a nine point two out of 10. So proud of Tony Hawk. There's actually a quote in here from the uh, game, the Nintendo Power reviewer folks who say definitively way better than the PlayStation version. Skateboarding is not a crime, not when it's this good. Great graphics, great controls, great game design, sound. Everyone loved it. Uh, I'm very excited. Apparently, though, early versions of Tony Hawk had questionable lyrics in the music. I want to look more into that. Uh, we're going to actually do a deep dive at some point on the Tony Hawk games and skateboarding games in general and, like, why Tony Hawk rose above the rest to be this definitive title of skateboarding games in the early 2000s. I'm dying to know. I love it, and I'm excited. So the top spot, as I said, 9.2 out of 10 overall ranking for Tony Hawk Pro Skater. I am so disappointed to tell you all that the lowest ranking was Ultimate Paintball for Game Boy and Game Boy Color with a 5.8. Quote, far from the ultimate. Ooh, ouch, 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 ouch. 
They have a mild little review for Perfect Dark for the Game Boy Color, which actually looks, it, it's another one of those games that like feels like it's pushing the envelope of what I consider a Game Boy Color game. Like it's just so wild. I really want to pick it up and actually try it out. I wonder if I could play it on stream too. That would be very sick. And they mention here that Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, baby, it's already in development for the N64 and it should be ready by the holidays. Thank God. I could not wait any longer. They also have the section where they talk about the release forecast, titles that are coming in the future. Conker's Bad Fur Day. It's coming. It's coming, man. We're excited. Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, as we said. Zelda Triforce series on Game Boy Color, which I think I actually own. They mentioned three titles. I think I own all three titles, bro. I think that I own those titles. I think. Now I gotta look. Everything is behind me in my collection, so like I don't have an excuse to not look. Um, but I think I want to look. Um, next issue of Nintendo Power. More about Perfect Dark. Thank God. More secrets in the multiplayer modes. Uh, details on Tomb Raider for Game Boy Color, which looks a little silly, but I'm excited to check it out. And then Excite Bite 64. You loved Excite Bite on the NES. Excite Bite, Excite Bike on the NES. You're gonna love it on the 64, or will you? We'll find out. The future is ahead of us, and I'm so excited. That about wraps it up for Nintendo Power this month. I am so 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 excited to dig into this deep dive with you next. Uh, let's take a quick little break, though. As mentioned, you are listening to Today in Gaming Yesterday with me, your host, Emma Pearl. I am so excited to talk about The Sims 1 with you after this quick break. So keep it locked, and I will see you in a moment. Welcome back to Today in Gaming Yesterday. I am your host, Emma Pearl, and today we are going to learn more about The Sims 1 on the PC. And listen, as mentioned, kind of a hot take for me to be digging into a PC title, but The Sims 1 has always been one of my favorites. And if you've never heard of it, if you've never known anything about The Sims 1, maybe you've heard of The Sims 2, Sims 3, Sims 4 even, and you're not sure why people care about the sims one what makes the sims one special like maybe you've only seen the graphics and you're like boo like i get it so i'm here to tell you a little bit about it and tell you that i learned a lot here too and there's a lot of like uncovered thoughts and feelings and cool stuff that the sims one did for video games that you know we should stop and appreciate every once in a while right so what is the sims very very simply put haha <laughs> oh that was bad the people who didn't turn off earlier for my bad joke are going to turn off now. Simply put, it's a simulation game. You simulate real life. You control the characters, the Sims. You control to some degree the world around them, not always. And the Sims that you control basically do it all. They go to the bathroom. They sleep. They go to work. They get fired from work. They do well at work. They have relationships. They get in fights. They have babies. All of the things that, that you know, can happen in these human lives will happen on the Sims. And as mentioned with controlling the environment, you also can kind of do a little bit of that, but not entirely. Uh, you build houses, like literally from the ground up. You build the floors, you build second stories, you build all the walls, you do the interior design, the wallpaper, uh, the plants, the art on the walls, the furniture, what TV a sim watches, what uh, video games they play, what kind of kitchen style they have. You can control all of that because you build, basically, it's been described as this like virtual dollhouse where you just have complete control over the entire environment and then also kind of the ability to pause and fast forward time, which is pretty sick too. You can make your sims do almost anything. And as I mentioned, the environment can also play its own factor. Uh, there will be prank phone calls that come to your house that are honestly sometimes a little bit scary. Like the scary noise of a sims prank phone call is burned into my subconscious forever and will kind of fill me with a little bit of fear. Things catch on fire, people and objects. And, you know, a burglar can break into your house and steal all your stuff. Kind of wild. Like these things will just happen. And it, it really builds into this cohesive world of the sims that feels so tangible to me as someone that grew up admiring and playing this game and it's hard for me to imagine a world without the sims the game was released when i was a kid probably like eight or nine because it was released in 2000 i didn't get a chance to actually play it until i was 10 or 11 all of my friends had it 
Like my, my big major friends in elementary school in Kansas had it, but my mom would never let me get it. And it really bothered me. The first Sims game I ever had was a Sims one port onto the GameCube, which was not the same, not the same. In retrospect, compared to like a lot of the media of the early 2000s, The Sims 1 was like kind of tame in some ways. We'll dig into more about that later. Uh, I think it might have just been a little too like off the wall for my parents to consider buying it for me. Uh, But when I did get a chance to play it with my friends, we would play for literal hours. Hours. We would be up all night controlling these Sims, making wacky things happen in their environment, making them fall in love starting fire, all kinds of weird stuff that you could do in this game, we would make it happen because it was just so fun to see how it played out. And it still is fun to see how it plays out. So the concept of this gameplay is different from other games of the time and games in general, not just even of this time period. You don't really win or lose. You can kind of technically lose with all of your Sims pass away. But the big thing is that you just play. You can just continuously play and there's no prescribed path There's no one specific way to do it. You really control what happens to the Sims and how their lives play out, which is so revolutionary. Like if you think about games like Civilization or even SimCity, which we'll talk a little bit more about, you kind of have this end goal in mind. You want to achieve, you want to do things, but even there, you don't really control things at the most granular level like you do in the Sims. You control like these individual lives in this game. You don't manage every moment. You don't manage all of the things that could happen to them. So you don't really have that level of control that you do have in The Sims. And so kind of begs the question, like, how does somebody come up with this? Like, where does this come from? And that is where we can bring in the creator, Will Wright. Will Wright grew up in Louisiana. He attended a few different universities, never really got a degree, but he taught himself a few different programming languages. He taught himself basic, Pascal. He taught himself assembly language. And then he actually started developing games for the Commodore 64. In 1987, 1987, he met Jeff Braun, who worked in technology and really wanted to invest in the video game industry. And Will Wright was like, yo, I have this cool simulation game called SimCity. When when Will was making these games for Commodore 64, at one point he was doing like kind of like a bomber helicopter style game. And he noticed that he had more fun creating the level than actually playing the game. He loved making the level below with the action. Uh, he, He really liked that. So he's like, yo, I bet. A fun game could be built around that concept, which was SimCity, which if you've never heard of it, it's kind of wild. You literally create a city. You plan out infrastructure. You develop residential versus industrial areas. You collect taxes. Um, You want to improve the standard of living and and make a great city. It became super popular. Folks really liked it. Uh, Wright created a lot more games of this same flavor. Sim Earth, Sim Ant. SimCity 2000, SimCopter, uh, right just kind of dug in. The kind of game that you couldn't really win or lose and you could just play forever and definitely right was all for it. In 1991, there was a super sudden and horrible firestorm that swept through the Oakland, Berkeley area in California. And Will Wright acted super quickly to get out of the area. He You know, he could smell smoke. He decided to get out. He saved the life of himself and his two neighbors. They lost every single material possession they owned in this firestorm. Their house and everything was gone. One of his passions when he attended college and was studying lots of different things was architecture. And so as he kind of pieced through the rubble and remnants and ashes of what all he had owned, he thought a lot about what people really needed versus, you know, what they think they might want. There's a really good quote taken from berkeleyside.org from Wright himself, and it says, The interesting part was to find out that I really wasn't attached to that much, or that attached too much, he says. I started assessing my material needs. A toothbrush, underwear, a car, a house. I was surprised how I didn't miss stuff. The fact we got out and none of our family was hurt seemed so much more important, which is so true. The Sims really had its genesis kind of in this moment of stopping and assessing your life and all the things that you have that can kind of come from from really intense and traumatic moments like that. It's like what actually matters? What matters to you when you are trying to, quote, reacquire your life? Like what's the value of a possession and how do your possessions bring you fulfillment? So Will Wright created The Sims to kind of explore these concepts. He originally conceived of the game as just kind of like an architectural design game, which he wanted to call Home Tactics. But someone suggested to him, while 
you know, you know, you're building this house. It's like, hey, the players should be rated on the quality of life experienced by the people that own the home, which, you know, kind of ties into that same theme of what value do your material possessions give you, which is something that's really explored in The Sims and kind of something that makes me think about it too. Uh, For example, you know, in The Sims, if you have a house with no art on the walls, no plants, your Sims may be like, man, this room is bringing me down. So now I'm like, should I get a plant? But I digress. Will Wright described The Sims like this to GameSpot in 1999. Um, It was released in February 2000. So this was kind of like a a preview moment where Wright was kind of shopping it around a little bit to all the game magazines. He said, there are several levels of gameplay. At the lowest level, you're dealing with minute to minute time management. You decide whether your characters are better off taking a bath, calling a friend, heading off to work. You spend less time at that level and you go on to the economic level, buying more objects. To continue, you start looking at your own life and you see how much of it is based on microeconomic decisions. Will I spend my evening partying, reading, or resting? It's kind of a wild concept and something that for me, like I said, it's hard to imagine a world without it now. But at the time, not everybody was sold. Maxis, which is the company that Wright formed with Braun in 1987, they weren't like super stoked on it. But EA bought Maxis in 1997. So at this point, they were pretty interested. They recognized that it was just so different in the video game landscape and even EA's existing catalog of games. And they saw the potential to turn it into a franchise and pull so much out of it. So when it actually was released, The Sims was an absolute slam dunk hit dog. It was unlike anything else out there. People found themselves getting sucked into the game for literal hours. I still do, even with The Sims 1. GameSpot put it like this, in terms of appearances, The Sims' greatest strength isn't grand graphical splendor. It's the tremendous personality that each minute detail lends the game, from the way that Sims lean forward and laugh at jokes, to the way idle Sims hum nonsensical tunes. Literally, the the paper girl that drops off the paper every single morning at The Sims, I wonder if, if my mic will pick up my whistling. every morning I love it like you build that into a game and people notice that stuff it's really really sick and I felt very taken by this notion because like it's not often that game companies will build in this level of detail these little things that like not everybody's gonna notice but the people that notice notice it and it sticks in their brain and they love it I love it by March 2002, The Sims had overtaken Myst, if you've ever played Myst on the PC, released in 1993, I believe. Uh, Sims overtook Myst as the best-selling PC game of all time. They released seven expansion packs, including Hot Date, Vacation, Making Magic, Unleashed, which was my personal favorite, that added cats and dogs, and another one called House Party including others. With all of these expansion packs, they really took the game to the next level. Like you could enjoy the base Sims game on its own, but with the expansion packs, you could do things that you hadn't done before. And it made the world even more deep. You could let people come over to your house with a house party, with hot date. You could go downtown and go on dates and meet other Sims out there. They would add new items, new interactions, new careers. The expansion packs really took it to the next level. And so The Sims ended up being this wildly influential game and was recognized and awarded as such. Awards including Interactive Achievement Awards Game of the Year, GameSpot's Game of the Year, the Game Developer's Choice Awards Game of the Year, and an IGN Award for the Best Simulation Game. In 2016, the Strong National Museum of Play inducted The Sims into its World Video Game Hall of Fame. And as of March 2015, The Sims had sold more than 11 0.24 million copies for PC, making it one of the best-selling PC games of all time. Something very interesting that The Sims encouraged and appreciated and thought was really cool was the concept of modding. So they enabled custom content and adding custom mods and things to the game. And then they also really fostered this community around it, which was really exciting at the time. Maxis, the company that released The Sims in partnership with EA, they released modding tools for the game actually before the game itself came out. And so regular folks could make their own stuff. Even brands were getting into it. Remember earlier we talked about how uh, GamePro had shirts that you could put on your Sims and download like... Companies were doing that. People were doing that. Maxis had their own website where they hosted this content called The Sims Exchange. You could download houses, lots, community lots, uh, specialty places for your Sims to go, outfits, things that were so ornately customized with specific items, specific themes, all of that. But they fit 
perfectly into your world. And Maxis made that possible via the way that they made custom content and loading and uploading that content so accessible, so sick. Uh, the exchange was this really cool way that just kind of enabled the creativity of the folks playing the game. It enabled storytelling. It allowed for deeper exploration of these stories and creative ways that people were playing the game. There's also what I would call a less official <laughs> mod and patch, which uh, mild uh, content here. It's probably why my parents never let me play this game. Uh, folks would make custom patches and updates to the game that would do things like remove the blur around a sim when they're in the shower like people really got into the nitty-gritty of this game and something that I had never even known that I was learning with this research is that people would make items that you would interact with in the game that kind of gave this like god mode moment to it so like you would interact with this item and it immediately give you 50 playful or you would put an item in a room two sims would come into the room and be doing two separate things but their relationship would go up because of time spent together which i think is actually something they have built into the sims 4 now which like totally makes sense right like if you're in another room of the house with somebody you're probably gonna talk to them even if you're not playing chess together or playing a video game together so kind of a really cool way to modify the game um, in addition to wild custom furniture specific things built in to look like your sim has a tv with a gamecube it's so sick i found a website fresh out of 2004 it had a ton of patches objects to download there are still so many of these sites that are active and even more that were active while this game was kind of being developed and the expansion packs were being released it's such a really cool piece of history and like people really digging in and what I think I love the most is that there's no one right way to play the sims and so there's no one right way to make content that is custom for the sims so one of these websites I found for example was super heavily fantasy influenced so you could get like cool art for the walls of your sims it was very heavy in the fantasy realm um cool like marble columns like witchy decor like a fantasy aesthetic and then I found another website where it's all very retro futuristic custom furniture like really digging into whatever the aesthetic the creator was into anybody could share what they were into and share it broadly and people could enjoy it and appreciate it in their own games I think that also this game speaks speaks a lot to folks that were quote casual gamers and I think that the sims is credited a lot with getting women and other groups of folks who may not traditionally have found their place in gaming got them into it and for me too just on a personal note I feel like the sims was was and has always to me in that way like even with some of the simple gameplay stuff been a safe place to like be a queer person for me like a safe refuge like nobody really talks about it but like homosexual relationships in the sims were just like a thing like you could have two sims that were women that got married and loved each other and like it, you didn't have to do anything about it and it felt very like Shit's Creek to me if you've ever seen the show Shit's Creek uh where the way that that relationships are treated in that show for me is similar to The Sims where it's not like oh, gasp these characters are gay it's just like these characters are in love this is what's happening and The Sims was kind of the same way it was nothing that was really made such a big deal out of at the time it was just like yep there are these characters and it's happening it it was interesting and I think the impact of that has I, I would be interested if like the Sims one and the impact of that has been explored more because I think it's sick love love that part of the game especially and also I cannot talk about the Sims one without talking about the cheats if you are listening to this and you have played the Sims one I'm sure that cheats are possibly buzzing in your head right now like a classic rosebud for example, give you free money if you're playing or if you're listening to this, if you never actually played The Sims, that's a free one for you. You can Google other ones, too. They're all still out there. A lot of existing Sims websites are still active. It's so sick. I love it. It's very exciting. So like I said, I could do an entire podcast series about The Sims 1. There's so much to unpack. The music is incredible. So much item design, the lore, everything that went into this game is incredible and comprehensive and intense. I just didn't have time in this deep dive to tell you every single thing about it. But if you've never tried out The Sims, check out some gameplay video. I play it on The Sim, or excuse me, I play it on stream from time to time because it is such a fun game. And to me, it feels nostalgic and timeless, but also tied to this kind of like turn of the century vibe. There's like a little bit of like retro futurism moments happening. Um, 
you know, some nonsensical inventions that actually don't exist. And truly what makes this game so special and unique is the open-endedness of it, open-endedness of it, but also the personality and the quirks and the lore and the flavor and thoughtfulness that they put into the concept of living and how we approach it, even in the video game sense. So I hope that you enjoyed learning a little bit about The Sims on PC. Really incredible game. Um, you should check it out if you never have before. You know, Sims 2, 3, and 4 are all also great games, but there's just something to me about The Sims 1 that will always feel so great and feel so like at home for me. Like it's a game that I feel like I can always play and enjoy. And, you know, I think that's sick. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It's been so fun putting it together for you. These wild things that we learned that feel like they should have been jokes, but were absolutely not jokes. Um, so I hope that you enjoyed learning about that this month. Once again, you're listening to Today in Gaming Yesterday. I'm your host, Emma Pearl. Uh, thank you again to folks that I got tons of information from this week. Retromags.com, RetroCDN.net, GameRant.com, GameSpot.com, BerkeleySide.org, The Sims Wiki, SimCrediblesigns.com, and PandoraSims.net. That about wraps it up for me this week. I'm so excited to dig into May 2000 with you all next week. Summer's coming, baby. We got to get ready for it. The games are going to be good. The weather's hot. So we got to stay indoors. We got a game. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, all that good stuff. I hope that you have a gorgeous rest of your day wherever you are. And remember to work hard, be nice, and have fun. Thanks again. This is Emma Pearl with Today and Giving Yesterday. And I will see you next time.